This is Transistor.fm. Hey, Nate. Hey, Ron. How you doing? I'm doing good. How you doing, Andrew? I'm doing good. How are you both doing? Excellent. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. What have you guys been doing lately? What are you working on? Actually, I've just been looking through some uh, the latest trends in Ruby. Pretty excited about some things that are going to be coming to the language. Yeah, like what? What, what specifically? For me, pattern matching is probably one of the more exciting things that I've heard about. I'm really excited about it. It's not fully what I would want it to be, but it's a good start and I'm pretty anxious to uh, to get using it. So pattern matching is cool. I know they implemented pattern matching one particular way, which Matt's had, and he had a logical explanation for it, but it was not idiomatic elixir style pattern matching. And so there was kind of this huge uproar and they've, they've backed out of that, but now they've got a new implementation. Yeah, it's pretty much like a case statement. So you would case and then have your pattern or, you know, whatever you're trying to match against. And then your cases underneath that or uh, your wins would be the different patterns, basically. It's pretty much a case statement, but you can pattern match and you, you get all the benefits of pattern matching. Like if you create a structure with variables in it, then those variables now are assigned to the values that are matched. So it's pretty cool. And do you have a, like a, a presentation or a slide deck or documentation that you've been following? Yeah, I mean, so I don't remember what the guy's name is, but he did a presentation at RubyConf and has his slide deck online. So I'll put a link in the show notes. But yeah, it's pretty cool. Did you go to um, that talk at RubyConf, Ron? The pattern matching one? Yeah. Yeah, I did too. That was... I've never heard of pattern matching before because it's never been a feature of a language that I've used. But... As soon as they were showing like what it does, I was like, oh, that's the thing I always want to do with a case statement that I can't for whatever reason and then get really annoyed. <laughs> yeah, well, you can now. <laughs> or at least you will be. Is is two seven out? Not yet. It's supposed to be like Christmas Day, I think. Oh yeah, that's right. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, you will you will be. You will be able to. I saw a slide deck on it. I'm sure it's probably the same one. I, I unfortunately missed RubyConf with you guys. Wish I could have gone. Yeah, it was a it was a good time. I enjoyed it. It was my first RubyConf. From uh, the people to the food to the uh, place that we were at, everything was uh, pretty top notch. So, yeah, it was my first RubyConf as well. I've been to a few Rails comps, and I think the food was amazing like that like the part that i took away and came and told all of my friends the food was so good yeah yeah it was but it was good it was definitely interesting to see like the differences in kind of the types of talks that happened at ruby and rails comps and i had heard this about ruby confidence which is why i really wanted to go i wanted like a lot more deep technical talks and there definitely were several really good ones yeah, yeah, there were. So, uh, Andrew, why don't you tell us about one of the talks that you uh, really enjoyed? I enjoyed a lot, but I think Sandy Metz's keynote really was the best one for me. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree. I, I, I loved her talk. Yeah, no, that talk was very well presented. She had very good, like, slide content and... Like the message behind it was so powerful. I think it was like, it was an awesome talk. And I would definitely encourage anyone who hasn't heard it to go watch it on YouTube because it was just crazy good. Yeah, the um, Confreaks videos are out. And so when I saw that they were out, I was basically sending the link to that video to everyone at my work and anybody that would listen to me talk about it. So it was great. And I really appreciate that somebody like her, who has basically a, a very loud voice in our community. A lot of people listen to her, would use her platform and her influence to get that message out. So I thought it, I thought it was really special. That It was awesome. So you guys are kind of leaving me hanging here because I we haven't we've talked about how great the talk is, but not what it's about. <laughs> give me give me a teaser. 
<laughs> so the the talk was about basically how lucky we are. the The name of the talk was "Lucky You," and she started out by talking about how lucky we all are. You know, we basically we we do like to think that um, it was based off of our hard work why we got to where we you know wherever we're at in our careers. But she basically breaks it down and shows how luck plays a big part in how quote unquote successful some people are and you know down to you know your race and your gender and the place that you grew up you know she had data that showed very different outcomes for people that grew up you know as close as two and a half blocks from each other you know they've collected data over the last 30 years that show the outcomes like you know salary incarceration rate, that kind of thing. And, you know, it was just really eye-opening to a lot of people, I feel, that didn't know that, you know, these things were even an issue. She talked about redlining, how the federal government, when the when the federal government started backing home loans, how, you know, Black people were not able to get loans. And, you know, if Black people weren't allowed to live in certain areas because it would bring the property value down. And so therefore they weren't allowed to get loans and stuff like that. And the overall message was, you know, since we are where we're at and we are fortunate to be there, we should use our luck and our fortune to try to help change the system that keeps other people down. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really good. It was really good. Yeah. I'm definitely going to go check that one out. It reminds me, I just saw a tweet from, I can't remember who who it was, maybe Scott Galloway or somebody had was talking about it it, kind of in the same type of uh, message that the Ivy league schools in the United States will serve a higher like total population of their student body will have more people from the top 1% of like the the income bracket here than they will of the bottom 60%. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. There were, there was other pieces of data that she showed that were, you know, similar, like uh, the top, I don't know, something crazy, like the top 150 wealthiest people own more than like the bottom, it might be 60% or something like that in the United States. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy how unbalanced the power and the wealth is the system's kind of been set up to do that. Yeah. I think kind of understanding that and then just helping, you know, recognizing your own good fortune and, and helping lift others is, is the key. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited to go watch that talk now. So what else is exciting that's happening in Ruby? We got Rails 6.0.2. Yeah. Have you gone through the release notes? Do you know what is coming? Yeah, it's not a ton of stuff. I think there were a bunch of fixes for Active Record that went out. I bet that's the main reason they dropped a zero two. I think there was like another fix for Active Job and like two for Active Support. But yeah, the main thing was uh, a lot of Active Record fixes. That's cool. Active Record's pretty important. So uh, I'm digging it. it. It is. It's the main reason I was able to ace my database course. And they told me to design an application with all these different SQL queries in it. And I pasted them the Rails log as my final project. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. So I don't know if we're pretty good into this, but I don't think we've said who we are. Uh, You're exactly right. We're, this is kind of the, the maiden voyage of this podcast. And this podcast name is the Ruby blend. We're still kind of working out what the format's going to be, but we're, we're hoping that we can really just get together and have a chat, talk about what's happening in Ruby, talk about what we're working on, and make it a fun place to kind of hang out. And we invite the listeners to listen in and kind of enjoy and participate in the conversation with us. So, Nate, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I guess we, we had talked about doing a, like a meet the hosts here at the beginning and I'm kind of a old school programmer. I've been writing code for over 20 years now and have been doing Ruby for about 10. I came into programming through design. Basically, it was doing uh, a lot of Photoshop work, a lot of branding type stuff, uh, a little bit of signage, that sort of thing. And then found my way uh, kind of 
as the web became a little more pervasive and, and popular, companies wanted a website, which was essentially just HTML. So I cut my teeth with HTML and CSS and started dabbling in JavaScript and then finally went off to what you could essentially think of as a boot camp at the time. I took some classes at the local uh, community college and then went in and did a, uh, a boot camp to kind of shift and transition my career into programming. And that education path took me about a year and I landed my first programming job doing classic ASP with Visual Basic. And then that company adopted .NET with its first beta release. So I, I adopted C Sharp and kind of shifted out of Visual Basic into object-oriented stuff. And from there, I was still kind of the front-end expert. So I was doing a lot of like advanced JavaScript stuff before jQuery was even a thing. And then through my experience with JavaScript and love of dynamic languages, I landed another job because I wanted to transition away from Microsoft after, after spending several years there and, and uh, get more aligned with uh, the open source kind of movement that was happening and uh, was able to transition my career into dynamic languages via JavaScript at first and then found Ruby after that and fell immediately in love with Ruby and got my first uh, paying job doing a Rails project, and the rest is history. I've I've dabbled in other languages since, but I always come back to Ruby. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I was going to pass the buck and ask Andrew. <laughs> Sorry, I've been losing my mind because there's a bug flying around. So I was always like the kid that found the trouble no matter where I was at, and the computer to me was like that big box of fun. <laughs> fun slash trouble. So I was always like getting into stuff on the computer, like breaking them apart, figuring out how they worked, playing online games. I just, cause I kind of grew up right as like the computers started getting off of dial up and into like good internet where you could actually do like games and stuff like that. So I was like really big into technology and I really throughout my life have just kind of been gravitating more and more towards programming of some sort. I took some computer science courses in high school, Visual Basic, some HTML, CSS, Java, JavaScript, then went to college for a computer science degree. And there wasn't like, I wasn't loving it. Like the courses I was taking, it was like old PHP, Java, Python was pretty good, but not like the cool stuff people are doing with Python. Just like, making a snake run around on the screen Python. So I was like very, very interested in programming and I really liked doing it, but all the problems that they were presenting to me were boring and had no factual, there was no reasoning to me why to do them. And I wanted to build something real. So as I was like trying to figure out like odd ways to make money in college, I decided it would be really easy to start doing web design because I think every problem is going to be easy until I'm like, weeks or months into it. I'm like, Oh wait, <laughs> that took a lot longer than I thought, but I learned a lot more HTML and CSS got interested to front end frameworks like bootstrap and a few others. And I built some websites for freelance and I wanted to learn how to be a better designer because my designs were very, very, very bad. So I actually got an internship at a company in town doing graphic design and then just by happenstance, I, one of the uh, people in their technology team learned that I was computer science and I knew how to code. And he asked me if I could help him build a website for this dashboard he was basically creating. And it kind of took off from there. They started bringing more things to me, like little things on the side. And then they were like, well, we are looking for an intern for next semester for computer science, if you're interested. And they were a rail shop. So... I guess that was May of 2018. So I've been doing Rails ever since. And currently I work for CodeFund. What about you? Patson. Yeah, we yeah. got to get, get Ron's story. <laughs> All right. So yeah, I'm Ron. I started programming my first, I wrote my first line of code when I was 11 on some computer in the gifted classroom was QBasic. And ever since then, I was hooked when I realized that I can make computers do stuff. That was like the best thing for me. 
I went to Magnet High School that was for programming, and then I went to college for software engineering, but that didn't agree with me all that much, so I dropped out. After dropping out of college, I went back to doing low-voltage installation, which is what I had uh, learned from when I was a kid. That's what my dad did, and he taught me how to do low-voltage installation. So I did that, and I worked for a company as operations manager. I was in charge of the techs the technicians and, you know, assigning the jobs and stuff like that. And when I was there, I realized I needed something that was better than Excel for managing my techs and their uh, tasks and, you know, all the jobs. So I was like, well, I can program. So why don't I make something that'll help me? Now, I wanted to make uh, it a web app because at the time I was running on a Mac. I'm still running on a Mac, but other people in the company were not. So I said, well, Let's make a, a web app so other people can use it too. And that's when I decided to learn PHP. I started going through some courses on Treehouse to learn PHP. And, you know, I started building out this app and started building out all of the CRUD capabilities for, you know, basically one entity. And it took me like two weeks to write this stuff by hand. And then while I was in Treehouse, I looked and saw that there was this other thing called Ruby on Rails. And so I started watching some of the videos on that. And the first video I saw, they ran like one line in the terminal and created everything that I had spent the last two weeks like writing in PHP. And I was like, whoa, hold on. (laughs) Let me go check this out. And so that's, that's how I got stuck on Ruby. That was back in uh, 2013. While I was building this tool, I realized, you know what? I like doing building this tool more than I like doing my actual job. So I should probably change careers. And so, yeah, in 2014, I decided to go uh, full-time as a developer and I never looked back. Like Nate, I spent some time in .NET, but then Nate actually hired me for my first Ruby gig which I'm grateful for. And right now I work for anti-malware company called Malwarebytes. I didn't know you worked for Malwarebytes. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet company. I, I like the people I work with. Yeah, I'm a big fan of your, your tools. When I was <laughs> doing uh, some like low-end, like basically helping people with their computers and their viruses and stuff, I would always pull open the computer and be like, oh, you're running Norton or Windows Defender. I was like, no, nah, you need this malware bytes. I'll get that virus right off. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, my uncle who doesn't know anything about computers, he called me once because he had an issue on his computer. I wasn't able to answer the phone, but when I called him back, he's like, oh, I called somebody else. And they told me to run this piece of software called Malwarebytes. Do you know anything about it? And I'm like, uh, yeah, uh, I think I know one or two things about it. I work for them. So we had, <laughs> we had a good laugh about that. I'm kind That's of curious awesome. about your other work experience, Ron, before you really transitioned into programming. How has that like, affected your programming career? Like, has it been a benefit to have that other experience and bring kind of that, a, a different perspective into programming? I I think it has. I mean, to me, and actually I was speaking with uh, somebody about this maybe a couple of months ago, everything's programming to me. Anything, you know, everything basically equates to the same like stuff in my head. And so when I was doing low voltage, it's just, I mean, it's the same kind of, it's the same kind of problem solving, the same kind of logic. The tools are different, but you're still solving problems you know, and you have uh, basically a tool set that you can work with, you know, whether it's wires and relays or whether it's, you know, if statements and, you know, iterating over things, everything kind of breaks down to the same thing in my head. So yeah, I don't know if that's just because I've cultivated that mindset. And so I look at everything through programming lenses or if there's actually something to that. But yeah, definitely a, a lot of problem solving came from my days as a technician. So even when I was working with my dad as a kid, you know, there were times when I was like, dad, we can't do that. And he's like, that's what the customer wants. So we need to figure it out. (laughs) So I learned some valuable lessons about, you know, pretty much anything's possible if you throw enough relays at it. (laughs) No, that's, that's a good experience Um, and a good attitude, right? Everything really is just problem solving, especially when it comes to computing. 
probably the most odd job that I've had was when I was doing the signage and the graphics and stuff, I actually became enamored with, with like the kind of the lost art of turn of the century, like classic signage. I'm talking gold leaf, glue chipped glass, that kind of stuff. And I actually taught myself how to do that and kind of had like a little mastermind group at the company and then a couple of other shops that, that we had relationships with. And we, we started to practice and experiment and kind of learned how to do some of those old, like lost art signage type techniques. And so that eventually led into doing gold leaf work and, and you literally use a piece of felt. So you, you put on gold size, which is essentially like a glue that you paint on gets to a particular tackiness then you have leaf and you you basically use the oil from your hair and this really fine brush and you lay it down, pick up the gold, put it on the, the gold size of the glue that you've laid down and then kind of press it on. And then you use a dowel with a piece of felt wrapped around the tip and you turn it to put a pattern in, into the gold. So we started doing that and then we were doing fire trucks. So we, we became known as like the fire truck gold leaf, like artisans and did several. I did that for a couple of years. Oh, wow. That sounds really cool. But I actually thing. had to look that up. I have no idea what gold leaf is until just a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the same thing. It's, it's all problem solving, right? You, you get stuck on, uh, on a particular area and you're like, how, how the heck are we going to do this? And you just figure it out. Yeah, I think that's the key. You know, there's a couple of programmers that, you know, I try to, I guess you could say that I'm mentoring them. And one thing that I'm always really big on is like, okay, yeah, you know, you want to learn syntax. Yeah. You want to learn, you know, your standard library or whatever, but the top thing you want to learn is how to problem solve. I tell them that's, that's what we get paid to do. That is our job. We are problem solvers. We just happen to use code to do it, but uh, you know, that's the benefit that we really bring to the table is the fact that we can solve problems. I remember working with some seniors when I, when I was very junior in my career and was amazed at how much they would push back on the business side of the fence, especially like the CEO and, and people that are typically on the, on the upper end of the power dynamic, right? They would come in and, and say that we have to build this particular feature. We have to do this thing this particular way. And we're kind of prescriptive in what they wanted done and how they wanted it done. And the seniors on the team would essentially just say, no, we're not doing it that way. We're, we're going to do this other thing. And it, it, was, it was the first time I had seen somebody push back so hard against you know, the, the existing power structure. It was, it was pretty fascinating. But I agree. That's, that's really the job, right? find the efficiencies and then make the recommendation on the best path to proceed forward. Right. Right. And then, and you know, there's something to be said about we want a, a certain result. Right. And you know, the higher ups, you know, okay. They, you know, they say we, we, you, this is the result that we want, but a lot of times they don't have the experience to dictate how we get that result. They may have an idea, uh, you know, a prescription on how they want it to be uh, handled. But hopefully, if they're smart and they know that they've hired smart people for a reason, then they will allow, you know, the people that are actually doing it to figure out the best way to get to that result. That's one of the things that I really like about the team that I'm on. You know, it's very like this is the result that we need. Go ahead and figure out how we get there. There's not a whole lot of, you know, spelling it out on how it needs to be because, hey, I mean, it doesn't always work out that way, right? You, 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 you figure out stuff and you find different things as you go along, as you're going through a problem and then you realize, oh, I can't do it this way. So the freedom to be able to, to do that is great. So I'm kind of curious in terms of, for, for both of you guys, what, what projects are you working on right now? Like what, what interesting problems are you solving with, with uh, Ruby or other programming languages? And, and what, what's the most interesting, fun or challenging or frustrating thing that you've been dealing with lately? I have been doing a lot of GitHub actions and I'm doing them in Ruby. And I basically, the other day, I have like a very a more popular one called Rubicop linter action. And it's gotten a little out of control in terms of like the amount of like things I'm allowing users to configure about running the action. 
which I never should have done, but here we are. And I'm trying to refactor a bunch of things. And I sent, I sent the code over to a buddy of mine, Chris Oliver, who runs go rails. If any of y'all have heard of that. And he sent me back a video of him saying how he would record, how he would refactor it. And that sent me on a 12 hour mission of refactoring Ruby and relearning a bunch of things I'd forgotten when writing core Ruby and reading way too many blog articles on metaprogramming and design patterns in Ruby. So that's what I've been doing. So did you back out of design patterns or did you apply new ones? Oh, I went so far into it. You know how a lot of people say that like the bad part about teaching design patterns is that people take them too far. Although there's other people like Sandy Metz, she was like, of course they're going to take them too far. What do you expect? Like they don't know anything else. So I felt okay by knowing that she had said that. I'm like, okay, well, it's not that bad, but I, I took the pattern that a few patterns that he, that Chris had sent me and I drilled down so deep into them. And no, I did not back out. I, I went farther. Nice. Yeah. That's the one thing about design patterns, right? As soon as you get, get a new pattern, you get really excited about it. And then uh, it's your new hammer. Like you, you want to apply it to everything. Oh yeah. And I, I hammered things that should not have been hammered. <laughs> what about you, Ron? What are you working on? So I'm sad to say this, most of the stuff that I've been working on is not even Ruby related. I'm doing a lot of React at, at Malwarebytes. And prior to, because we, this year, we, we switched to using React on the team that I'm on. And before that switch, I was not a fan. But I have to say now that I've had to be working in it for probably nine months now, it's actually grown on me. I actually like it. I don't think that it's suitable for everything. I think it's overkill for a lot of stuff, but it's fun to work with. The other thing that I've been working on a lot is a lot of DevOps type of stuff. So getting more acquainted with AWS, um, getting ready to, well, I'm going through one of the courses so that I can get my AWS certification learning some Terraform, which is rough <laughs> for me, at least. It's uh, challenging. What, yeah, what's challenging about Terraform? I, I, <sighs> I wanted to get into Terraform, but I just haven't taken the dive yet. Well, the thing, the thing for me, Terraform itself is not that bad. It's just that, you know, using it with AWS, there's just so much. There's so much you have to do. There's so many little things. And, you know, I'm not a DevOps person, so there's a lot of stuff that I don't even know that I'm supposed to be doing until I try to, you know, until I try to spin something up and it doesn't work. And then I've got to go look and say, oh yeah, I forgot to create, you know, this, you know, security group or, you know, this policy over here. And I'm like, oh man, it's just, it's just so much. Just the volume of stuff you need to know is uh, is a little overwhelming. So, but I'm getting it. I'm working through it. So. Yeah. I think that's pretty typical for the ops Space. I think Andrew's bumped into that a little bit on the actions side of things too. Also working with Circle, like he's been doing a lot of DevOpsy stuff on the Code Fund side of the fence. I know, and yeah, it is a rabbit hole. You can get lost in there. I've written a lot of Docker recently, which I like. I don't know about y'all if y'all do, but or if you if you've messed with that at all, Ron. But I like Docker. Oh yeah, I I like Docker. We use Docker on my team. I had gotten to the point kind of or how you said that you went so deep into patterns. There was a point where I was like, Dockerize everything, all the things, all the things belong in Docker, my dev environment, everything. I've since kind of backed out of that and I'm kind of trying to play the middle of the road there. Yeah, no, I think I think Docker is really cool. One thing that I've found a really has a really good use for Docker is I've been doing some Elixir lately. And the thing with Elixir is when you build a release, you have to build it on the same type of system that it's going to be running on. So like I can't build a release on my Mac and deploy it to like an Ubuntu server. So I've been using Docker to build the releases that way, you know, tar it up and then pull the tar ball out of the, out of the Docker container. And that's been working really well. So 
there are a lot of a lot of good uses for Docker like that. Even you know if you're not developing or deploying with it, it's still pretty useful. Yeah, I went basically the same thing. I found Docker. Someone gave me a very big hammer, and suddenly I was smashing everything in my path with it. But I definitely came back the other way. But I think the best thing for Docker that I've like really hit my stride with and really understanding how it works and its real power is with a lot of this, these actions and going a little farther into it and then looking how circle works and things like that. Because if I want to run code on someone else's server and I want to have it structured in my environment, structured in a specific way to run certain things, Docker is perfect for that. Yeah, exactly. Are you finding immutable infrastructure where everything rebuilds the most useful or are you building your own images and then storing them and then booting from that? I've been writing a lot of images. So I've been creating a lot of different environments that I want someone else to have. You're just throwing those up on Docker Hub and then having your action pull it down. Is that what's going on? Well, for the action stuff specifically, the way actions work is that you can either specify a particular, I mean, well, you specify a runtime. So you can say Ubuntu or Windows, but instead of specifying that, which just runs it on one of GitHub servers somewhere, or I think they run it with Microsoft Azure, but you can pass it a Docker image and it will basically spin up the Docker image, or you can just use Ubuntu and then run everything inside of an image that you specify, which was, has solved like all of the problems I was having. That's also how you make actions themselves. Like I was happy, I was helping a buddy the other day. He was like, I want to make an action. And I was like, cool. Well, you have to, I was like, you just have to write a Docker image for it. And I was like, that, that seems to be the easiest way to get it up and running. Like, especially for Ruby related things, because when you're running Ruby on a server, like you need Ruby. And if you're trying to run rails, you need to, you need to add Postgres or SQLite or whatever. And then you have to set up NP node and yarn and you have to add certain packages for Postgres to work. And then maybe you need to update your yarn version or your node version. And the Docker image is 100% the way you're going to want to do that. It's like, okay, if you want to run a Rails app in GitHub Action, and CircleCI does the same thing. You specify a Docker image that you can create yourself. They actually have a really cool Docker wizard, which you just basically answer a few questions and it builds an image for you. That's like optimized your runtime. Nice. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes, but you, you just specify your Docker image and circle any GitHub actions, and then you can run everything inside of that environment and it has everything you need. And it's, it's 100% the way to go. Yeah, I, I fell into the the Docker stuff very early on in, in the days of Docker. It was even before Docker Compose. And, and my discovery was, like, the, the use case I had was to set up a, a Graphite and StatsD server, which anyone who's tried to set that up by you know manually, it is a serious pain. And so I went through all of those pains and then eventually encapsulated all that work into a single Docker image, which is not really how Docker is designed to operate. It's more like small services that then need to be coordinated, but then you've kind of pushed a level of, you know, the, some of that complexity is now a layer above that you have to deal with all the orchestration on. And I encapsulated all of that orchestration with all of the many services that were running to basically set up that environment inside of one Docker image. And it, it became really wildly popular. There was a lot of derivative works on it. It's got over 8 million downloads. And anyway, it kind of speaks to the value of encapsulation. I don't know what StatsD or Graphite is. It's essentially a service that you can, if you're if you're running monitoring or benchmarking, anything like that out of your app, and you want to essentially capture statistics in terms of how often was this button clicked or how often was that API hit or you know how often are we returning 200s versus 400s, that sort of thing. You can just emit all of that data over into this service. But essentially what it, that particular Docker image allowed me to do was encapsulate all the complexity of setting up that environment and essentially with just one Docker run command, you could bring the whole thing up. Very cool. I was going to ask Ron about React. And now that you're starting to enjoy it, are you, are you using Redux as well? What are you using for your data management? Yeah, we're using Redux. A, I'm not sure 
that, that's one of the things with um, React and that kind of e- whole ecosystem. There's not really, or at least that I've seen, like a like a, this is the way that you need to do it. So we're we're doing our own flavor. That's to say that we're doing our own flavor of uh, React and Redux. So. But yeah, even even using Redux after the initial setting everything up and kind of figuring out, okay, how we want to do everything because, you know, you have to set up your reducers and your actions and, and that stuff is a little tedious. But once you we kind of got into the flow of that and we knew exactly how we wanted to set everything up, it runs a lot smoother. And actually, it, it, it ended up cleaning up our component code a lot because when we initially started, we were not using Redux and we were passing props through, you know, several layers of components that, and it just, the the props on each component were just getting out of hand. But yeah, I mean, even, even using Redux is not that bad. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. So you, 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 you stayed in the ecosystem long enough to, to convince yourself that you, you like it. Well, that's, that's the thing, right? Yes. And also because I wasn't the one that was initially setting up all the other complex stuff. <laughs> Somebody else on the team set it up and was like, okay, here's how you do this. <laughs> so uh, once all that complexity was dealt with and, you know, if I'm creating a new, a new component or a new action, there's already kind of a pattern there that I can just kind of borrow from, do a little uh, bit of copy pasta and I'm good. <laughs> yeah. I will say the Redux pattern is, is really cool. It's what really bothered me about it is just how much boilerplate, like to change one thing or add one, attribute often would require that you touch three or four files in a few of the past projects I'd worked on with it. Yeah, that's kind of the thing, right? Because your reducers live in one file, your actions live in another, the component is in another file. And, you know, if you've got like any kind of API, like your, your API files. So anytime we need to hit an API for something, we import, you know, the actions the, or the, our actions import from this API layer file. And yeah, so there's definitely, there's, there's quite a bit of, you know, jumping from here to there to do one thing. Yeah, I will admit that. Yeah, that's definitely a thing. By the time I started learning what Redux was, it was at the point where the community had started to sour on it. Unfortunately, because everyone that I've heard say, Anything about, I've only heard good things about Redux. I've heard definitely that there are cons and they usually can mention those, but they always are like, you know, I, Redux is good. Like I like Redux, but I know for a fact, if you say that on Twitter, <laughs> your comments are going to be filled with, bro, you know, you could do it like dot, dot, dot. Yeah. The, I guess, especially recently, you know, or I may, I guess not so, so recently, but you know, the React community seems to have been going more towards like function-based components. And then we've got hooks and they implemented something and I don't remember what it's called, but it kind of makes Redux, I guess, unnecessary, at least for, unless you have just like really hairy like state needs. But for most things, you could probably get away with it. I don't remember what what the feature's called because we're not using it. But I do know that recent improvements in React have kind of made using Redux not not that necessary. But once you've got it in there, it's kind of difficult to... (laughs) I think it's called React Context. I'm a JavaScript React lurker. But I, I, I think it's context. I've just heard that thrown around a lot. Yeah, now, now that you mentioned, I think that is it. The context help you to get state into the, um, into the components without having to pass it down through the layers of props. But yeah, like I, I saw it and I didn't look too much into it just because we're not going to use it probably. So, How do you like writing in components? Because... The one thing that I've always really liked about React is the idea of having separate components for your UI. And I'm really excited for Rails 6.1 to have action view component in it because I really like that style of, you know, writing your, like if I have an index page, I don't want to have to write 
div card equals, and then, you know, write all the code out. Like I'd rather like, okay, this is a list pass in like the list contents and things like that. Just have a super clean HTML basically. Yeah. I like it. And what, if you, if you get the components right, then it, makes it really easy to reuse them into the in the future and just say, okay, I want this component here. Let me pass in all the info that it needs to, you know, do what it needs to do for my specific case. We have had some of the components that we have that are reusable. It took quite a lot to get to them to the point where they were reusable. There were times where we would make a component and we thought we would be able to reuse it, but then the next time we needed it, it was different enough that made it more difficult to try to like change the original component and not break it for its previous case than to just create a whole new one. And, you know, that, that happens, but there have been cases where we've been like, Hey, we actually, we actually hit this one on the head. This is pretty nice. And it's nice to just use it everywhere. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we, my team, were not React experts before we started using it. So, may your, you know, everybody's mileage may vary, but from my experience, the the dream of reusable components is not as great as I was hoping that it would be. But it it is what it is, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. We, as when I say we, I mean Nate and I, just finished up a large re-skinning or re like our UI. We changed all the UI of CodeFund. And one thing that we started doing when we got into it is I was basically looking at all the pages. And I used to work with a UI designer who instilled, like he was incredibly intelligent and he definitely deserved and could have been like higher up on this like level of management because of just like he was a creative problem solver, but he just didn't want to do it. And one thing that he really drilled into my brain when I was working with him is like how bad it is to have like if you're building a web application and like you have a card on one page and it's a card on another page and they're different for some reason, he he was like, that's bad. He's like, you need to figure out why they're different and remove the difference and solve the problem that whoever built that was trying to solve in the way it should actually be solved instead of just modifying the way the card is supposed to look. I was like, because a card should always have the same features, et cetera, et cetera. Like he, he drilled like that, having like a table on one page and a table on the other page. If they're different, you should figure out why and then try to solve that problem or create basically a new pattern. And one thing I did when I was running through CodeFund's code for the old theme is I was finding a lot of code that, you know, there was a card here and there's a card here, but they're defined in different ways and they have different classes and like, you know, they do different things. And it, it just triggered every teaching that man had ever, ever said to me. And I built a bunch of helper functions because I didn't have action component yet, even though I know I could use it, but I built a bunch of helper functions and then they got larger than intended. And the other day I was pairing with Eric who Nate and I work with and he, he came across a file of mine that was basically no HTML. It was just helper functions and text. And he looked up from the keyboard and he looked at me and he's like, did you write a mini framework inside the app? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the danger. that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree that, you know, if, if you at all possible, definitely try to solve the problems where you don't need these special case things running around everywhere with us. We, you know, we did that to a certain extent on some things and then some things we just had to, you know, the, the app, we were basically doing a rewrite of the UI. And so our stakeholders had already been using the app and were used to things being a certain way. And so we had to kind of, you know, weigh, you know, what can we change and what kind of are they pushing back on? Like, hey, you know, we're used to being this way. We like, you know, we're like doing, you know, we, we like our workflow to be, you know, this certain way. So, yeah. 
there were there are trade offs, but yeah, we did we definitely did a, a fair amount of you know uh, redesign to try to make things more more uniformed. That's funny you say the one phrase that I heard all the time when resisting some changes I wanted to make in my old job was, "Oh well, we like our workflow this way." You can't take away that, that page with, you know, 800 pieces of different data scattered across the screen. That's, I like my workflow. Right. I'm like, but this new one's better. And they're like, eh, no. Well, cause then, you know, that's like the, the pragmatic uh, thing comes in. Right. And it's like, yeah, we can, we're, we're building this app, but like in my case, the, the stuff that I work on is for a specific set uh, of people and, as much as I say, ah, it's better this way. If they want it a certain way, ultimately they're the ones working in it. So that was a tough lesson for me to learn as a younger programmer, and still to this day. Yeah, I got I got it pretty pretty quick in my career too. Like one of the one of my first jobs was with financial software, financial systems, bond trading, stock trading apps. And if you've ever seen any of those UIs, they are very very vanilla. They essentially look like spreadsheets on a black screen. And of course that just like rubbed all of my UI UX sensibilities the wrong way. And I would come back with these redesigns, introduce it, hand it off to, to the, to the higher ups and instantaneously, like they wouldn't even spend more than five seconds on it and would come back and say, it's crap. Get rid of it. (laughs) Yeah, it happens. It's that that workflow. (laughs) <laughs> people like the people don't like to change and it's hard to convince them that the way they've been doing something can be better when some kid walks in their office with like a, a different screen of the screen they've been looking at for 10 years. And they're like, wait, why do you want to change this? I'm like, who are you? <laughs> why is this 20 year old explaining like how I could be so much better at my job if I would just use his crappy new thing, his new hit thing he brought me. Yeah, we're always talking about moving, moving the cheese. We're like, oh, we moved it. We got to move it back. <laughs> Pull it out. Yeah, I learned that lesson when basically I, my product manager looked at me and he, he's like, I know you don't want to do this. And I, he's like, and I know I don't want to do this. And we both know it's a bad idea. But I know that if I don't give them this, that later they're going to not be willing to compromise on something that we really need. And he's like, so I need you to give them this. And he's like, I know it's bad, but they want it. Give it to them so that in the future we can, they'll be willing to compromise because that we gave them like just moving, moving the cheese. I think that's probably something that I, I, at least me personally, I don't hear that talked about a whole lot in our circles, but like dealing with that kind of thing, you know, cause we're you know, ultimately we're dealing with other human beings with feelings and their own ideas of, you know, how they want something to be and, you know, uh, how to, how to handle that type of thing. And that, you know, absolutely that give and take, like, is this really a hill that you want to die on? Or, you know, can you give this accommodation so that later on when something really matters, you know, you can get it. I'll never forget. I was sitting in class the first day of my senior year and the teacher of the class was a retired product manager. He'd worked for years, including for the defense department, I think. And I think one of the first things he said, he walked in and he's like, look at all you coders. And he's like, I bet you all think that when you get out of college, you're going to work for a nice tech company where you don't have to talk to people. And he's like, I'm here to tell you in this course how that is wrong and how the majority, however much you want to like pretend it's not like there's a humongous aspect of communication and working with people when you're a software engineer. And I had to take a long walk after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's true from, you know, verbal communication to emails to even, you know, actually writing the code is still, I look at that as communication as well. You know, you know, even trying to to write code in a style that is going to communicate to the next person. You know, a lot of times my future self, what I was trying to do with this, you know, in this area 
and maybe not going for the the most clever way to write it because you know Ruby allows you to write things uh, in a you know you can get some pretty clever solutions, but you know writing the solution in such a way that it's clear as to my intent it doesn't just you know look cool. So yeah, definitely communication and code. I'm pretty big on that. I actually got that the other day. Someone looked at me and they said, don't be so clever. <laughs> and I, it, I didn't understand at the very moment. I was like, I don't understand how you're saying this thing that sounds like a compliment, but you don't look like it's a compliment. <laughs> and someone explained later, like, oh no, because you took something that could have been really, really simple on you. You made it into a giant disaster because you thought you were being smart. <laughs> right. Yeah. I ran into an issue with that maybe about two months ago. I was in a part of the system that I had previously written and I was making some updates to it. And I saw one method that I thought, oh, you know, it was three lines. It was three lines of code in this method. And I was like, you know what? I could do that in one line. And I did it in one line and it actually caused a bug. It wasn't apparent at first. I didn't even catch it in staging until one of the stakeholders was, you know, doing their you know, their daily workflow test, you know, going through doing everything. And then there was just something that was a little off. It wasn't working. It was pretty subtle. And I spent the next two days trying to track down that bug. And then I tracked it down to where I was trying to be clever. My one line didn't do exactly what the three lines did. That was a lesson to me. (laughs) Yeah, a little humble pie. I think we all get to eat that every once in a while. So we're, we're kind of getting close to an hour on time here. We probably ought to uh, wind down. One of the sections that I did want to do, though, was at least talk about one or two open source projects in the Ruby community that may be getting some attention or traction or that we find interesting. And the one that I noticed this week was Hugin. I don't know if you guys have used Hugin or played with it, but Hugin is essentially a, a Rails app that allows you to run a self-hosted Zapier, essentially. I've, I've never, I've actually installed it once, but I never really did much with it. So I'm curious if you guys have, have any experience with it. So I had heard of it uh, a little while back and I always thought, man, that would be a cool project to try to do something with. But then I never had anything that I, that came up that I really wanted to, to use it for. So yeah, I never, I mean, I've never actually touched it, but it sounds cool. Yeah, I'm yeah. kind of in the same same situation. I've installed it and then I never really did anything with it, but it, it seems awesome. I saw it and I it didn't really like I didn't really understand what it was trying to do. So I just kind of moved on to the next because I think I mentioned this to you too. I basically scroll through GitHub's trending section like it's a freaking social media feed. But yeah, I just I didn't understand really what what it was trying to solve and there was just a lot that they were throwing at it. And I was like, yeah, next. Yeah. It <laughs> that does sounds look, cool. It, it looks pretty com- complex, but I don't know what happened this week, but they, I mean, they've picked up 3000 GitHub stars just this week. Oh, wow. I think I might need to take another look at it then. See, yeah. Because uh, that's an older project, right? Yeah. I think the first time I heard about it was a couple of years ago, which I mean, that's old in, in web tech, right? Incredibly yeah. ancient almost. All <laughs> right. <laughs> well, is there any other projects you guys are think you've been looking at or that kind of sparked interest for you guys this week? I found a cool one. It's called Chatwoot. It's a it's a simple live chat software, like an open source alternative to like Intercom and Zendesk and all those other ones that I've used. I've used over three three or four of these types of tools and never enjoyed it. Intercom was, I saw what the, they were trying to do. I thought it was cool. I think they're all cool, but they, I don't want to use them. <laughs> if that makes sense. I understand, appreciate, and enjoy watching them solve a hard problem, but I don't want to use their tool. But this one looks pretty simple and clean and it's open source. It's just a Rails app. I'm pretty sure that you can self-host, but if I ever got that dreaded metaphorical knock on my door that said, all right, we want to add the little chat bubble in the corner now, when every app seems to at least have a conversation about that, I, I would probably reach for something like this because I've tried so many others. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. 
I've been waiting for Ruby to introduce the the WordPress alternative that's actually viable. <laughs> uh, Nate, it's called Rails. <laughs> you want a blog? I can give you a blog. <laughs> no, I said that's actually a viable competitor to WordPress. So there's a, a project that I've used in the past and it's not quite WordPress. It's not there, but it's a, it's a good start as far as, uh, and, and it bolts into your Rails app. It doesn't take it over. It kind of stays out of the way. It's called Fay, spelled F-A-E. I think that stands for Fine Admin Engine. And that one has actually been, uh, you know, I've tried some of the other Rails-based CMSs before. And that one, by far, is the one that I like the most. Like I said, it just kind of gets out of your way. It doesn't deal with any of the user-facing stuff. It basically gives you an admin and a way to generate your content entities. And then you design your, you know, your user or your front-facing pages. And from your uh, controller, you just basically uh, pass it like a page object that has all of the, the CMS data in it. And you just do your, do your template as, uh, as usual, do your view as usual. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool. I'll uh, put a link to it in the show notes. Oh, that's awesome. I need to go check that out. It's been a while since I've done a done a exploratory deep dive on on the CMS options available in the Ruby landscape. I should go revisit that. That's okay. I have a question about that because I know and have looked at and have maybe played with every like not every a bunch of like little Rails CMS tools only for like exploratory projects, never on a client project and one day, and I've always thought they were crazy cool. And I've also seen tools like all these front-end headless CMSs are also getting really popular. And I think those are cool too. But one time in my last job, someone came up to me and they were like, we want to add a CMS for this Rails app, basically. And I'm like, that's no problem. I'm like, there's like tons of gems for it. I was like, I could just pick one off the shelf. And when it went to the senior programmers, they were like, oh no, we are not doing that. Absolutely not. So I don't understand why they were so against like putting in like one of these CMS options, but I've heard that some of them can get a little unwieldy, but I don't know why. So if any of y'all know, I'd like to know. Yeah. Essentially like my experience with them has been that they, they get you about 80% of the way there, but then the remaining 20% of the edge cases that they don't cover are where you right, start to experience significant pain. And then you start to contort in weird ways and, you, and you're fighting rails and you're fighting that their engine, if it happens to be an engine, and trying to get everything to play nicely with the feature set and the requirements that you've been given. And then, and then you get to that point where you're like, it would have been better if we had either used something like WordPress and just hosted it elsewhere, or if we had just written a custom solution. Yeah. In my experience, some of them, they kind of take over your app. Like, yeah, they're written in Ruby and they're a Rails engine, but they really want to be the app, right? And so bolting them on to something that you already have running with, you know, your, you already have your users and your authentication set up, you end up fighting, like Nate said, both Rails and the, the, the gem to do anything that's not kind of just your, you know, straight and narrow path. But again, that's one of the reasons why I prefer that face CMS because it's, it's an engine, but it, it, it gets out of the way. It doesn't even care about your, your front end, like, you know, your, your user or, you know, front facing anything really. It just gives you some objects and you can use them as you want. And also it'll, it'll use your, you could tell it, you know, I already have my users and my own authentication and it'll use it. It's a lot more minimal than some of those other ones, which they're just like, they just come in and take over everything. If you want to hear my inexperienced junior programmer response, the first thing that came to my mind when both of you started explaining, I was like, oh, we'll just fork the gem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, about that. <laughs> yeah. I my second thought was, oh wait, no. I've I've 
I've heard so many people explain why that's a bad idea. And I'm like, but it sounds so easy. <laughs> hey, hey, Nate, didn't you have an experience uh, recently where you decided to fork uh, a gem to update the UI? How did, how did that work out? Well, th- that one was pretty old. It was actually a CMS as well. Or, or it was actually really more of a CRM. It's a, I can't, which one was it? It was a fat, was it fat free CRM? I can't remember which one it was now, but yeah, it, it really hadn't been maintained that well. I mean, it was, it was great back in the day, but I mean, Rails has since evolved and, and it really hasn't kept pace. Anyway, I thought, well, I can just use this and I'll, and I'll just make it look better with CSS modifications. And it started innocently enough and then just got more and more complex. And yeah, the edge cases just finally pushed me over the edge and I just ended up like bagging the entire project. At least you had the ability to just stop yourself then, because if that were me, it would be like two days later, I would be sitting here with like my eyes sunken down to the floor. I'd be like, all right, it works now. And it only costs me 48 hours of sanity. (laughs) (laughs) And then the fallout of that. Yeah, no, best best to avoid it. Although, yeah, I mean, it's. I think the running the experiment is is a worthy thing, but catching yourself before you like jump off the cliff that's that's the important part. Well, I think we've kind of pushed past an hour here. Is there anything else that we need to mention before we sign off for our first episode? Nate, you never told us what you were working on. That's the that's the hook. So you got to stay tuned uh, for next week to hear the things I've been working on. I'm always learning things. <laughs> well, cool. Sounds good. Should we should we wrap it up? Thanks for yeah, hanging let's out. Do it. Yeah, it was good talking to you guys. Definitely. All right. We'll talk to you guys later. See ya. See ya. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.